remembers when Domark Software Limited had to change the name of satirical ZX Spectrum game Splitting Images to split personalities due to legal difficulties. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one else ever seems to is writer Jack Kibblewhite. Jack, what are you up to and where can we find it? Probably the main thing is TV Cream related stuff. So there is the ongoing history of Saturnite TV that's written by myself and Steve Williams, which we are chronicling in many, many parts, probably likely to be hundreds, to be honest, by the time we're finished. And that's published every Monday on TV Cream. And then we also do at TV Cream a occasional Cream Guide film commentary podcast. So look out for those. Well, your first choice is someone who I imagine might well show up during the history of Saturday Night TV. I really hope he doesn't turn up during one of the film commentaries. Anyway, let's have a listen to him in action. Here we go, a bit louder. Have you seen what you do? I've got a tip for you. Don't. I'm sorry, but it's true. You haven't got a clue, so don't, don't, don't give up your day job. Whatever you think, whatever you say, I know it will offend you, but I say it anyway. The general consensus of the people here today, don't, don't, don't give up your day job. Next verse is about um, the politician. Well, here's a surprise from Digent. Well, that's those people with day jobs told, and no mistake, they won't be doing that again. Chuck, what were we listening to? So that song is, of course, Don't give up your day job by Richard Digence. And the reason why I've picked it is because it's one of those songs that you hear once and it's forever stuck in your brain, in part because he just continually sings that same chorus line. And it's nice to hear it again because you you can then sort of track back on how much of what you remember is actually evident in the recorded version. So the actual quite complicated line, which is it's the general consensus of the people here today, don't, don't, don't give up your day job. I remember absolutely word perfectly. It's a song that's rattled around in my head and I think it kind of sums up a style of musician and entertainer from a particular bygone period. But it was a track that for a long, long time I tried to rediscover and re-experience. Well, it is quite interesting. that say we all now pretty much just associate Richard Digens with kind of light satirical songs like that. But I'll be reading up on him a bit and it looks as though, you know, he... Came out the whole sort of same sort of thing as Billy Connolly, Jasper Carrot, Mike Harding. You know, the kind of folk singers telling jokes as well. But it looks like he was a lot more serious about his comedy at first. And he actually toured America as a comedian in the early 70s. And apparently he supported Steve Martin on the tour, which was really quite surprised. Because, you know, all I really know him from is all those ITV vehicles with the kind of the comedy names that don't quite make sense when you think about it. Like, I remember there was a dabble with Digence, a drop of Digence, there was Abracadigence. Abracadigence, when you first hear that name, you think, that's a clever name. And then you think about it a bit more, and it's actually not clever, because all it's done is taken the word Abracadabra and then found another word that has a D. So it's abracadigence. Now, if it was Debbie Stevenson doing a comedy show and it was abracadabra, <laughs> actually, that's quite clever. But abracadigence is not clever, is it? Well, no, not at all. I mean, what it reminds me of is there was a story down on Brookside at one point where, if you remember, Pat and Terry had oh, yeah. a delivery van at one point. They were working for a guy who traded in kind of slot machines called something Henty, and this firm's called Hentytainment. And there was a whole episode's worth of them looking at his business card going... I don't get it. Do you? Do you get it, Terry? Hentytainment. And then at the end they went, oh yeah, Hentytainment. I get it now. Yeah, so it's kind of that level of comedy, really. The other thing that I want to point out about the song is that one of the things that I love about the recording that you've got there is that it has this, and again, I think this is something that's died out. It's got a style of communal singing that you don't hear anymore, which I can only really explain by kind of doing an impression of. So what happens is, so obviously what Richard does is he's tutored his audience in the chorus, and so he'll then tee them up and then they have to sing the don't give up your day job but they always sing it like this which is don't 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 give up your day job there's a kind of falsetto from the older women that is the predominant timbre that comes out of that performance that you just don't hear anymore if, if you get people to communally sing now they don't sing don't 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 give up your day job I think it's like posh singing back in the day. Well, I think it is still around, but it's just sort of evolved slightly because, I mean, a couple of days ago, I went to see Grace Petrie, the kind of half-protest, half-folk, if you could have a third oh, yeah. half, half-comedy singer. She has a song called No Such Thing as a Protest Singer, which is all about how things like The Guardian and Radio 4 are always running features on how come there's no protest singers anymore and they never mention her. But it all builds up to, you know, she does these incredibly 
really funny verses, and then the audience is supposed to come in at the last line of the chorus and sing, no such thing as a protest singer. Did they sing, there's no such thing as a protest singer? Well, actually, it would have been better if they had, because it was sort of a kind of mumbled response, really, like, no such thing as a protest singer. And she was actually shouting from the stage, you know, encouraging people to join in a bit more. But I think it's politeness. I think it's like church singing. It's that you can be enthusiastic, but not too enthusiastic. It's just all very subdued. That's it. Yeah, you're quite right. I think it is a church going voice. Uh, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Now, I don't remember on what programme I saw that before. And I'm pretty sure I only actually saw it once. So I don't know if it would have been an abracadigence or when he was guesting on something else. But the other thing I think is quite interesting about that song is I presume it's a, it's kind of a vessel for him because the structure of the song is such that he has the, the basic framework, which is it's the general consensus of the people here today, don't give up your day job, which then allows him to make observations of a socio-political nature uh, related to people who are clearly, in his view, deficient at their day job. So I, I have to presume that the verses have changed over the years because the version that I've heard most recently focuses on things like the Channel Tunnel. Therefore, I, th- I think it's intriguing to wonder what he might have done in version one. And indeed, if he's touring it today, I bet he's probably got something about Brexit, don't you think? Well, almost certainly, yeah. I mean, you do have to wonder about how people who are best known for, say, a topical gag or a topical character kind of react to when the rest of the world moves on and they've got this thing they're known for that they still have to do and the reference points aren't relevant but I can point to a couple of years ago well actually it was quite a while ago now I went to see Phil Cool's farewell tour uh-huh. and he you know there were a lot of quite contemporary references in it but there's a bit where he talked about how he worked so hard at keeping up with the rest of the world there was one impression he didn't even have to do his rubber face antics for anymore and he took kind of a deep breath and well, just take a guess. You know, if you think about what Phil Cool looked like in the 80s, then you add, say, 20 years onto it, you work out who he looked like? No. George W. Bush, he looked exactly yeah. the same as him. It's a yes. brilliant impression, and he didn't have to do any of his usual face-bending antics. It was just there. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, just on the Phil Cool thing, because, of course, he comes from the same broad church of kind of the Boggery and Jasper Carrot and all that sort of stuff. But there's an interesting observation about impressionists around how they age, which is, as I understand it, there's a general rule of thumb with impressionists is that you shouldn't ever try and do an impression of someone who's younger than you. So I'm intrigued as to whether when you saw Phil on his farewell tour, which should have been called Calling Off if it wasn't, whether he actually did anybody who's younger than him. No, I don't recall any attempts at doing Russell Howard or Ashley Morgan Wallace. Right, because he just looked stupid. So you said, do you remember Don't Give Up Your Day Job? Well, I do, but I don't remember it from his own shows where it probably made more sense of being a bit funnier. I remember it more from when he turned up in the middle of things like Russell Harty's chat show, which nothing against that as a slot, but it's kind of a poison chalice because that's how people see you. They see you on the same level as the likes of, well, we're back to audience response songs here because one very clear memory I have of somebody in the middle of Russell Hart he was the spinners you know those chunky jumpered folky shouters doing the song where I don't actually nobody write in and tell me the real lyrics I don't want to know I don't want to know what they mean but it, the chorus went bogey bogey spit in a cup spit in a cup spit in a cup repeated several times and the audience shouted wipe your nose on a mop stick and no disrespect to the spinners, but I think if you're trying to carve out a niche as a topical song satirist, that's not really where you want to be. I thought you were going to do the singers uh, with the refrain, which I never understood, which is, and I'll do it again with me navvy boots on. And everybody laughs. Why is that funny? Actually, if I was also going to critique Don't Give Up Your Day Job a little further, the other thing that I have against it is I hate comedy songs, which the bulk of it is consists of the kind of standard pat thing that gives it its framework. So the way that Don't Give Up Your Day Job ends is it's just his generic chorus, which he sings twice. And you kind of think, well, as soon as he goes into that, I know there's no no new jokes to be had. And I think that's a criminal offence with a comedy song. They should be packed with jokes or you should stop the song. Well, I think there's few people listening that disagree with that. But it's a good enough ending for your first choice because we're now moving on to your second one, which is represented by this. It came. The end of the world as we know it. But one thing survived. They could not break its following. The game.
people. Thank you. It's Friday here on Games World. So what have we got? We've got Beat the Elite. We've got two champions. We've got Mangatsu from Monday and we've got Simon from Wednesday. You know what happens? They come to come to all that trauma. They've now got to go head to head with each other and only one of them is going to go up against the videators, the toughest, baddest bunch of players on the planet. Right, well that was Bob Mills introducing a show that I have to admit I know very little about, although I'm sure if the elusive writer of the A to Z of Cool Computer Games, Jack Railton, was around, he'd be able to tell us. So Jack, what was Games World? And given that it apparently featured Diane Udale as, quote, the games mistress, how is it any different from Games Master? So I think this came from the same production powerhouse that made Games Master, but it's in my opinion the far more superior Games World, which was a Monday to Friday offering on Sky One in the early to mid 1990s. So the way that it worked on Monday and Wednesdays, they had a thing that was called the Eliminator, which was contestants facing off playing computer games. And then on Friday, it was Beat the Elite, where the Monday and the Wednesday winner came back, had a face off, and then they took on the kind of wrestling type cast of characters, which included people like Big Boy Barry and Mr. Mathers, the Megabyte Millionaire to try and accumulate points. So that was your Monday, Wednesday, Friday span. And then there was a thing called Games World Live, which I think ran on the Tuesday in the second series. And then there was a Big Boy Barry soap opera, which from memory serves, ran on the Thursday. The program that you're talking about, which featured Diane Udell, was actually a first series proposition only, which was a kind of hints and tips program well you mentioned hints and tips there which suggests that they used real games a lot i'm assuming they must have done because there must be some kind of commercial tie-in somewhere along the line but what i'm wondering is if it was on five nights a week and you know that had all these different very heavy formats was it all existing games did they have kind of self-devised in-house ones kind of a bit i suppose like the house robots and robot wars but games rather than robots well they had a couple of bespoke games but that was basically to help them with their formats for the eliminator so there was one called cash dash and there was then also a kind of target game at the end where you you had to throw stuff at target and try and accumulate points but that aside essentially if you think about the eliminator programs and beat the elite as being just like your challenge that you get on episode of games master so they'd be sitting there and they'd be having a go of um you know uh, super mario kart or sonic the hedgehog or or whatever so it was it was kind of a mix but the main focus was playing commercially released games and the most exciting bit of course was always if they played Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter. Well it's interesting you've mentioned both of those games because it brings me round to something I was going to bring up which is Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter. I never really played myself but I remember there was being kind of very much in inverted commas trendy games at the moment not in the sense of you know snappy well-dressed stylish hipsters playing them but I remember they were very very big with kind of a younger games playing audience who knew what they were talking about. I remember in particular Mortal Kombat Combat had a TV app there. It had all these cocky youths with terrible hair in puffer jackets punching the air and shouting, Mortal Kombat! So it was very, very a young, switched-on kind of audience that these games were geared towards. And Bob Mills does not seem a very good fit for that. Well, I, and I think this is the thing that worked very well. So you'll be familiar with Bob's presenting duties on Win, Lose or Draw. And the things that he did that made Win, Lose or Draw brilliant was he had his extra bits of business. So there was like Waistcoat Wednesday, do you remember that? So he had, a, he had an equivalent array of extra devices for Games World. So, for example, the contestants who were featuring in Games World all spent the week on the fictional Millsy Island. He used to have various running gags with his co-presenters. And again, this is something else that was brilliant about Games World is that the co-presenters were from the world of computer game journalism, but they were brilliant. So there's Jeremy Doldry, who is now quite a high-powered TV executive, and then there was Tim Boone. And I, to be honest, I don't know what's happened to Tim Boone, but Tim Boone was a kind of proto-Jonathan Pierce type figure, but for the computer gaming world. Well, as well as that, I've noticed that Bob Mills didn't actually do the last series, and was replaced by someone called Andy Collins. Andy Collins, yeah. Now, Andy Collins, so just so that your listeners don't get confused, of course, it's not Andrew Collins. Andy Collins is better known as the warm-up man for Family Fortunes, followed by presenter of Family Fortunes, followed by warm-up man for All-Star Family Fortunes. So that's quite an interesting career trajectory for that poor fellow. Yeah, he took over. So that I think there was like a two, I think there was there was three series and then there was a two-year gap and then Games World was brought back in a reimagined inferior form, uh, at which point Bob Mills, I think, was probably taking the STV shilling on win, lose or draw and they dropped in poor or dandy instead. So it was, it was never as good. I'd stopped watching it at that point. There is something else I have to remark on that's particularly notable about Games World, which is that for an entire series, myself and my friends featured in it, 
You wouldn't be able to hear us, but there is an interstitial, I think it's possibly for round one in series two and three, where it has a group of sallow youths in a post-apocalyptic environment standing behind a burnt-out car chanting Games World, Games World. So that's me, my brother, my friends Mackie, Goose and Bob. For a two-year period, I was on Sky Television, albeit for about three seconds, three times a week. Well, I know you've been on TV a fair amount since then, but it really was only in the early 90s that you would have got on in those particular circumstances, because it is odd, isn't it? There were only really gaming shows. Well, actually, it's not really that odd, but there were only really gaming shows in that kind of five, six-year stretch, because there's never really been, for obvious reasons, kind of a show based around you know, online internet gaming, because why really put it on TV when you can do it live on the internet? But there was nothing really before that looking at what I always associate with gaming. You know, the ZX Spectrum, Commodore 64, lesser extent the BBC Micro, though I'm sure they probably have Fred Harris playing some of the more educational and informative games on BBC Two. But really, gaming wasn't really something that the BBC really went near, was it? I don't think there was. There was, of course, there was Micro Live, wasn't there? Which I think was most notable for someone hacking into their press account live on air and actually I think I know what happened there um, someone who worked on the production did talk to me about that and what what happened was that they were about to go live and they'd forgotten the password and so they shouted it across the studio and they believed that it was one of their technicians and went away and decided that he was going to hack them so that's an exclusive for you well, I mean, I really like Games World. I think it, I think it was, it was a really good format. And actually, but one of the things that they did that really stands up well when you look at it now is they had a thing, Games World Live, which was a live show. And what they would do is, so there was a studio element which was hosted by Jeremy Doldry, and there was Philip Edgar Jones, who I think now is very senior at Sky Arts, was their uh, roving reporter. And each week he would come from a different person's house where they'd be playing games, but they'd be playing games against viewers who would phone in and could actually control the on-screen characters through the DTMF tones on their telephone. Okay, that sounds like an only very, very slightly more advanced version of Beat the Goalie from Bruce Forsyth's Big Night Out. Yes, so instead of having to do... So I think actually in the first... Halfway through the first series, they, they probably did have to recourse to the old left a bit, left a bit, right a bit, right a bit. But then it was actually while the show was in production that they came up with this way that you could actually pick up the DTMF tones on your telephone and use those as uh, directions. So, And I think that's genuinely quite an innovative bit of telly. Also, do you know which famous comedian features prominently in Games World? Uh, can't say I do, no. So he was billed at the time as David Williams. Oh, right, yeah, TV's Gibbis from Doctor Who. Yeah, he did a lot of those kind of shows around then in that early stage of his career, didn't he? Yes, absolutely. And for a long time, that was what I knew him for. So he was the guy off Games World. And in the first series, when they had the programme, which was Hints and Tips, he used to do a number of short sketches and he had a number of comedy characters. So there was one called DCI Mike Hatter, who was a police detective, and his catchphrase was, Get off my manor! So actually, a lot of his early work was on Games World. And then in a, in a later series, he took on the role of Leslie, who was Big Boy Barry's sidekick. Well, we're sticking with TV and with the mid-90s for your next choice, but we really couldn't be moving further away from Games World. But let's just have a listen to a bit of it. When I first met Kevin, he told me he'd been on the dole for 18 years. So you don't understand... There I know, but to me it's pointless. It it's like, no, yeah. No, I know it is, because you don't understand what I'm on about. What's point in trying to make points get on with your life? No, what I'm saying is, the situation between me and socially is warfare, Rob. And, and to outdo them is to outdo them. Yeah. And if I, if I win the lottery... What about if I, I want to travel the world, are you going to keep coming and yeah. sign on? Every fortnight, we'll get an helicopter and come back and sign on. Right, well, I have to confess that I'd never heard of this programme, and I tried to do some research into it. The only thing that I've managed to find online is actually a feature written by you. So, Jack, what is working for the enemy... And how did you come to be, the, well, the world's only expert about it? So I think my attachment to this programme is that it was back in the latter days of speculative VHS recording. So my recollection is this is round about the time when the BBC got very excited about user-generated content. So there was things like Teenage Video Diaries, of course, with Chris Needham. And there was Video Nation. And so this felt like it was one of a slew of those types of programmes. And I'd had a lot of happy experiences watching those, those shows. So when this particular document documentary came on it was a case of slapping the VHS and record it and actually the version that I have to this day is still just a digital version of the VHS recording of that doc 
Working for the Enemy is a documentary that follows the central character, a guy called Kev, and his girlfriend, Robbie. And Kev is a person who's taken a political position that he doesn't want to work for the man and therefore will do whatever it takes to be able to uh, continue receiving his doll, but will not work. So it's a, it's a kind of sort of obdoc type of thing where we just follow Kev over a period of time where the man is basically trying to force him into a position where he has to take a job. Well, I've been lucky enough to have a look at that, that self-same digitised VHS recording. And what really struck me about it is, uh, sorry to go a bit serious for a second, everyone, but after years and years of, you know, we've had documentaries where people like Kev, who in some ways you'd think he isn't a very sympathetic figure, are treated very unsympathetically. Uh, they're held up for ridicule. They're what's wrong with society. They are wrong. Everything else is right. No attempt to understand them. No attempt mm-hmm. to help them. But this, it really seems very much on his side. It's as though it's trying to get to what has pushed him into that position. Yes, and I know that the guy who made it, uh, Sean McAllister, who's who, again, this is obviously the theme of this, is that I clearly had a nose in the past for uh, picking on people who had, who had later gone to great things. I think Sean McCaster's had a reasonably prestigious career as a documentary maker. He spent quite a lot of time getting Kev and Kev's partner, Robbie, to agree to do this. And I think they had friends in common. So the access that he gets is pretty extraordinary. And I think, you know, his uh, I, I think his basic operating principle in doing this is that Kev is a guy who has a particular take on the world. And so he's just trying to understand what Kev's take on the world is and then look at how that then impacts upon his lifestyle. So what he can do and what he can't do. I think the thing where that becomes editorially challenging is there's, there's quite a lot of sequences that uh, take place in a restart class. And by the way, that's, that's a clue to what the lasting legacy of this documentary is and within that you have the guy who's who's leading the restart class has a really difficult time trying to get any of the people there to engage in what they're trying to do and so there's a particular character there a, a chap called Mr Waddlelove who has a particularly bleak view of the world and of industry and actually their discussion uh, in which Mr Waddlelove basically talks about there's there are fewer jobs this year than there were last year next year there'll be fewer more for me it's just a long slow wait for death it's very slow but I'll get there in the end is then kind of counterbalanced against this guy who's leading the class and whose attitude is come on guys let's just have a bit of fun who knows you might get something out of the week that uh, you'll really enjoy so that's where it becomes editorially challenging I think because it's quite difficult to capture all of that and for you not to feel like the guy who's leading the class is a bit of a fool. Well, given that this was on BBC Two in 1997, I'm fairly sure that I know what you're alluding to there, what the lasting legacy was. So have the people that were guessing drew some inspiration from this ever acknowledged that they have? Well, they have in so much as that in one of the... So what we're talking here, of course, is the restart sketches in The League of Gentlemen. And actually, in one of those sketches, there is a character called Mr Waddlelove. And that is clearly not a coincidence. And it has been confirmed that actually... Yes, this documentary was the direct inspiration for those sketches. Well, obviously, I had no idea about that because I'd never actually, well, I've not even heard of working for the enemy, let alone seen it. But I'm not actually that surprised to hear that because I always felt what marked the League of Gentlemen out around them was around the mm-hmm. time they first appeared. There was quite a big thing for well, people used to call it reference comedy, where I'm not picking on this per se, but to use it as a good example, space was something that relied very heavily on direct references to a film a tv series a book where quite often if you didn't understand the reference point you didn't get the joke but with the league of gentlemen and chris morris did this a lot in the original brass eye as well a lot of the kind of reference points that became inspirations were very mundane things you know like the the drug school in brass eye is that that ITV schools program up the free school it's very clearly based on that now it's just a well-known thing it's not a prominent thing but and very few people remember it but those that do remember it would have seen that and thought that's where that came from but for everyone else because it's just rooted in that mundanity and that reality it's a really easy reference to get and League of Gentlemen really capitalised on that as well I mean I always think of my favourite characters were Ali and Henry from the video shop because they mention things like Rawhead Rex alongside you know Terminator and Predator or whatever I guess what it is is it's not really a reference it's detail it's background detail really it's things that people saw that they didn't take much notice of oh, well I'm sure the League of Gentlemen yeah. actually did get Rawhead Rex out of the video shop 
shot, but things like these, it's not obvious detail. It is kind of background detail, and that makes it so much easier for people to relate to, to, to get what you're aiming at, and anything that relies on them putting two and two together in the head, really. Yeah, yeah. I think you can almost call it the sort of Simpsons principle. One of, one of the brilliant things about the Simpsons in the earlier days for UK viewers is that you didn't have to know the reference points to understand that they were parodying something because there was a kind of authenticity to it. And I think that that is the thing that makes those restart sketches so good because there is an authenticity to it. And it just so happens that in watching Working for the Enemy once again, you realise that's where that comes from. Well, it's odd, really, but it's also good that when you think back to that whole kind of early technology-assisted public access TV, it was really made to be disposable. You know, here today, gone tomorrow. See people talking for a couple of minutes about oh, I don't like these new 20 pence coins or whatever it was on Video Nation. And that was it, really. It, was, it wasn't even your 15 minutes of fame. It was your three minutes. The only thing that anyone really remembers with any clarity was, as you mentioned earlier, in bed with Chris Needham. But it's actually really good. that You know, this is a completely obsolete part of television history. But this programme went out, I think it went out once, and you remembered it, and the League of Gentlemen remembered it. And that's really quite an achievement. And I hope whatever, wherever Kev is now, whatever he's doing, I hope he's doing well just for that reason alone, really. Anyway, I've got absolutely no way of linking from there into your next choice. And to be honest with you, I've no idea what I'm going to use as a clip for this anyway. So, here goes. Right, well, I really think I should probably know what this is, and I don't, so I'm just going to get straight on with it. Jack, what was Arkansas? So, yes, Arkansas was a comic fanzine from the late 1980s and the early 1990s. It's a fanzine that seems to have fallen through the cracks in the sort of great history of British fanzines. So, um, obviously, there was a whole slew of Doctor Who fanzines, things like DWB and The Frame. And in the comics world, the probably the most notable British one was a thing called Fantasy Advertiser. And then there was also another one called Speakeasy. But there was then a kind of second tier of fanzines, of which another one would be called After Image. But Arkansas is, is the one that I particularly remember. And in a way, the, the, the thing that makes it so evocative for me is it was kind of part of my journey from being a mainstream consumer of something into a fan of something. And I think the journey sort of takes this course, which is that you're, you quite like something and then you discover that other people like it. And then you discover that actually there's a shop that sells this particular thing that you're interested in. And then when you go there, you discover that not only does it sell all of the comics in this instance that you uh, can't get in the local newsagent but it then actually has people like you writing about the thing that you're interested in so at that point you've you've kind of gone up through a hierarchy of an initiation into fandom and and for me reading something like Ark and Sword was the apotheosis of that journey. Well I doubt you were the only reader because it seems to run for a number of years but the really weird thing is like you say it has just sort of fallen off the face of well I mean, most fanzines, most famous fanzines, there is some kind of online presence for them, whether it's yes. the editor doing a website based on them, whether it's just a fan site appreciating them. There's almost nothing for Arkansas beyond a couple of scans of covers. And I really think that's it. Yeah, it hasn't. It's a shame. I mean, the, the format was very similar to most of those kinds of magazines in that, you know, you'd have your new section at the front, uh, letters page, and the letters pages were always massive long letters and loads because clearly their policy was anything that anybody sends them they'll print and there'd be people i think it was a guy called captain courageous who strike really long letters then you move into the main uh, interview section and then the back of uh, the fans and is your review section so it was it was a very generic template that all of those other titles and actually even if you if you translate that into different fandoms like doctor who it's probably a, an equivalence but it was just I think it it really was perhaps I have a special affection for it because it was the first one that I saw and actually quite a lot of the people who were involved in writing Arkansas are still within the comics fandom community today. Well even though like you say it had the format of any other fanzine I'm guessing that even though from that description it sounds a bit run of the mill a bit wordy maybe but 
this was a time when comics were starting to take themselves more seriously, starting to be taken more yes, seriously. Yeah. And I'm sure fans will have had plenty to say about it and plenty that was interesting to say. So I'm guessing Arkansas reflected that in no uncertain terms. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, actually, the thing is, is that most of these fanzines, they took their lead from there's a, a, an American magazine called the Comics Journal, which was sort of like that was the thing that everybody wanted to be. And so actually what happens is as comics became started to generate a kind of cultural cachet and people started to use this horrible term graphic novel, then the brow of the tone of these fanzines started to rise. So weirdly, while there was a kind of general celebration of these things, they, they start to become more critical. And actually the, the, the types of things that you're allowed to like starts to diminish. So by the end of things like uh, FA, which I think was perhaps more highbrow than Ark and Sword, the only thing that you could legitimately like was probably Love and Rockets. And it was a shame in a way, because you know that I think you know, you're sort of riding the quest of the intelligentsia, and I think that's the aspirations of these people. And actually Ark and Sword turned into a, a glossy magazine that was called Ark, uh, that was rather nice. Fancier Advertiser, which was always uh, in its latter days, known as FA. The guy who ran that guy called Martin Skidmore then tried to set up his own comics line. I think they were, I think they're Trident Comics. And actually, there's uh, people like Mark Miller got their first break through that scene. And in actual fact, Mark Miller, who today is obviously the kind of Netflix conquering comics guy, he, for me, for a long time, was the guy who used to write deliberately provocative and slightly annoying letters to Speakeasy magazine he would basically just be deliberately provocative about whatever was going on within the comics industry. But, it, you know, he had quite a fun and easy turn. But for a long time, when I, when I saw his comic strips that starting appearing, comics like Crisis and Revolver, it, it, to me it was always, oh, that's, that's that guy who used to write letters and speakies in FA and so on. So and that's who he was. And about 20 years later, I ended up working at a place where the sub-editor was a chap, uh, and I'll name him, his name is Andrew Littlefield, excellent man, and uh, it transpired that he had actually conducted one of the interviews that I enjoyed most um, back in the, the fanzine days. So he did an amazing interview with Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill, who were the team at the time behind Martial Law and things like Nemesis the Warlock. And it was, uh, it was eye-opening because it was one of the early days of Pat Mills basically ripping into everyone. Well, I think it's very easy now for people to downplay just how important and how exciting fanzines were. I mean, I mean, you know, there were yeah. fanzines for all kinds of different fandoms, but I think everyone's got similar stories, really. I mean, my big one was, was a fanzine called Time Screen in the late 80s, early 90s, where... The main writer was a guy called Andrew Pixley, who a lot of people might be familiar with. There was work on the history of Doctor Who and yeah. a lot of work on DVDs and film books and so on. But this was it was quite an astonishing new thing because it wasn't concerned at all with, you know, fan hierarchy or production tittle tattle or controversial reviews. It was just a story of how things were made, why they were made. And you know, there were people that didn't like that. I remember quite often it was a sort of running joke that people say things like, Oh, I can't stand that time screen i don't want to know who the studio manager's cat was but there was a real community built up around it of people who you know there are names that you'll see now whether it's working professionally or whether you see them just reappear on social media or whatever where you think i know you you sent in that letter saying why didn't they do a feature on freewheelers and i find that still with because i got involved with fanzines later on and only the other day somebody appeared on twitter and said Oh, you're Tim Worthington who used to write for FaZe, aren't you? And I was like, what? Well, of all the recognition that you can get in this sort of field, sometimes that is the nicest, sometimes it's the most pleasantly surprising. Yeah, and it's and you know it's quite exciting. So, I mean, I had for uh, a Korean Guide film commentary, we actually had Mark Miller on to do a couple of commentaries, and, and, and I was giving him a lift home. Uh, you know, so Mark Miller's kind of hung out with Brad Pitt and uh, Angelina Jolie and so on, and he got massively excited when I said, listen, I know the guy who did that interview of oh no Andrew Littlefield and he was just he was just amazed so I think I think it is isn't it it's a in a way uh, one of the nice things about fandom is you sort of create your own cult of celebrity almost well I get massively excited if you said that you knew a guy who had anything of your next choice because I've not been able to find any evidence of it at all out there so again I don't know what I'm going to use here but I'm going to use it anyway. Politics, pets, or holidays, was dinosaurs in outer space. Nothing's ever been quite like it. Buzzing around, it's gonna hit your town. Get in the box, get on the box. Who's that? Okay.
Okay, well, this is something that I only have very, very faint and hazy recollections of because I think I just wasn't particularly interested and was a bit over it by the time it was on. But the only thing out there online about it is the TV cream entry for this programme, which frankly could be written either by you or by me or by neither of us, which says, Woo Public Access, 10-minute children's ITV filler where a video box would trundle into a shopping centre and the kids could queue up and sign off about whatever they fancied. The resulting tapes always began with either This is my pet rabbit, I would like to complain about the fact us girls can't play football in school, or a burst of human beatbox followed by We're on Who's Next and It's Really Cool. So, Jack, tell me more about Who's Next. One of the things that the internet age has done is it's largely killed off the notion of rarity, but actually Who's Next is one of those things that I think is still genuinely rare, because there doesn't seem to be any footage of this that exists. So uh, I can just purely go on my memory now. Who's Next is essentially, it's like the, um, uh, did they call it the video booth in Right to Reply? Is that what it was called? Yeah, so it's essentially like the video booth in Right to Reply, except they had this extra little device, which is quite nice, which is when you had, uh, when you came into the thing to start, there was, uh, you had to uh, lean forward to the camera and move a screen away to, uh, from the camera. And then at the end, when you're finished, you then get back up and you pull that screen back over the camera. So that denoted the beginning and the end of your sequence. But essentially it was a kind of, I presume they must, have toured the country and let kids come in and just talk about anything that they like and for us it was kind of appointment viewing because it was just very weird and quite a liberal tone so the sorts of things that they would include on it uh, the two examples that come to mind was there was a young uh, it was a blonde haired boy curly hair and he sang pretty much the entirety of Xanadu to no musical accompaniment what and then the other one that particularly stands out was there was a, a young lad who Probably to use the parlance of the day, you might have described as a hooray Henry or a yuppie, but he was probably 14 years old, who was protesting against the tightening up of the gun laws. And what I remember him saying was they tightened up the gun laws because a man went a bit potty with a shotgun in Hungerford. Okay, I think I actually would rather have the Xanadu score so, there. No, I might be imagining, I cannot believe, I cannot believe, and I have checked with uh, my siblings, and they have the same recollection, so I don't think I've fabricated this. But that's quite an extraordinary thing to have on children's ITV, I would have thought. Well, I don't know whether it was down to a lack of time or a lack of resources or just the fact that people weren't really paying enough attention, but stuff like that did used to slip through in those days, particularly on children's TV. I uh-huh. mean, you know, there's all the obvious ones people remember, like in the End Titles of Murphy's mob, there was the you know, the graffiti cover balls, and they had expletives and the drawing of a naked woman on, but you've just reminded me of something that I've never been able to work out exactly what happened here, but I've got a very clear memory of watching, I don't think it would have been Swap Shop, because I think it would have been known about, but one of the BBC Saturday morning shows, I'm sure it was BBC and not ITV, had a phone-in quiz one week about completing film titles, and I'm convinced that one of them was Texas Chainsaw Blank. Whoa. Because I remember that being the first time I'd heard that title. And what was going on there? Well, they did, actually. And you just brought to mind another one. So in 1986 episode of Pebble Mill at One, there's a section where Paul Coyer is doing a roundup of the the latest released commercial videos. And so he, he sort of, he has a range of videos, including some adult titles. Oh, please let that have been some of the Electric Blue videos. No, I, I, I can't remember. But the thing that then makes that slightly weird is, do you know who his guest reviewer was? Um, Pebble Mill, Roger Whittaker. <laughs> no, I'll give you one more guess. Doris from Five Star? No, it was Morrissey. So now, I, I was lucky enough to actually watch it the other day, so I, I know that I'm completely accurate in this recollection. Well, I'm actually hoping that kind of leaks out and goes a bit wider now, because it might force him out of embarrassment to tone down some of his bloody outbursts. Of course, you'd never silence Paul Coyer, which is good news. So, sorry, we, we were talking about who's next. So, uh, my recollection is that it was, it was sort of appointment viewing. We used to watch it with my dad. Uh, so, my, my dad was out of work at the time, and so there was a suite of afternoon shows that we favoured. So, what would happen is when we came home from school, we would watch a video recording of the 1.30 screening of Neighbours. We weren't willing to wait until the 5.35 repeat. And then there were certain programs that we enjoyed in in the schedule and Who's Next was most definitely one of them because it was just very weird and very entertaining. The other thing that I remember about it is the theme tune. Of course, that is the bit that's been preserved for the ages. It's interesting that I remember word for word the final bit of the refrain, which was get in the box, get on the box, who's next? And I think any program title that you can shout in that way, I think it has to be a massive boon. Well, I'm trying to think which other programs had the title shouted and if there's any correlation with quality. I mean, there was the main one I can think of is Ask 
Ask Gaspel. Did they shout Ask Gaspel in Ask Gaspel? Ask Gaspel! Yeah, they did. And there's also Checkers Place Pop and Jossie's Giants. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, of course they did. And it, wasn't there also a, a foreign language version as well? Was it German? It was Italian when they played that Italian team. Italian. But just to tie it back into Richard Digence, who we were talking a, a bit about earlier, the thing that's common with, uh, and I think unusually with Jossie's Giants, and Richard Digence, and then also something like Rent a Ghost, is they have a, a kind of a very deliberately complicated set of lyrics, which when you listen to them now, and I think Rent a Ghost is probably the high watermark of that, you do just sort of think, okay, who was your audience when you're writing this? Because it was clearly someone else in the office and not young people who wouldn't really understand what an apparition ripped from deep inside a crypt means. Well, I know there's a good link in there somewhere from that to your last choice, but I've tried shouting the title of the programme over this bit of theme music, and it isn't working, so let's just have the music. So, Jack... Why were we just listening to the This Morning theme? I have two memories of This Morning, actually, that I'd, I'd quite like to see if we can interrogate a bit. The first of which is that I have a dim recollection that at some point during the Richard and Judy, and it will be the Albert Dock era, they launched a competition for members of the audience to write a theme tune for This Morning. Well, the original theme is hardly exactly a lost bit of the Beach Boy smile in itself, but... It's not a bit of a risky competition because surely they cannot have expected to end up with anything worth using. I have a feeling that the original prize up for grabs, and perhaps they couched this in vague terms so that they could contractually get out of it, was that this would become the theme to this morning. So there was a fundamental flaw behind what they did, which I think is the same mistake that you could argue that the that the Parliamentary Labour Party fell into some years later, which was they allowed a two-tier system in which there would be an internal selection, but then also there'd be a viewer vote selection. And clearly to the chagrin of, if no one else, Richard Maidley, the internal selection didn't find favour with the viewers who went for an alternative number. Now, I can actually remember a little bit about both of them. The selection that clearly Richard favoured was clearly a semi-professional musician who made his own video. My recollection is it's a man with a moustache who was playing bass. And uh, all I can remember is that he had a line in it where he said something along the lines of Richard and Judy are hosting the show with a nice kind of bass line in a slightly Mark King-esque style. So that was the favourite choice of the production team. Meanwhile, the audience went for a more pleasing, slightly haphazard rendition that, again, my, my memory is it's a husband and a wife, quite senior in years, filmed themselves singing their rendition which all I can remember is the refrain, which brings us back to the falsetto church-style singing of the woman of the duo singing, This morning from the ITV, which I loved, for no, if for no other reason than for putting the definitive article in front of ITV. Oh, I do love an extraneous thought. And actually, I like the sound of that for probably entirely the wrong reasons. But I always think competitions like this, where creative decisions are thrown open to viewers, are a disaster in waiting. Because I remember in the run-up to the 2012 Olympics, the BBC did the competition to... I don't think it was actually to design the official logo, but it was to design something. Maybe it was the BBC's branding for it. But the standard of entries for fully grown adults was so ridiculous that I decided, yeah, you know, I'd had enough of it. And I just found, I found an old picture of John Barrowman. I think it was when he, from when he was presenting Electric Circus. I just wrote next to it in Microsoft Paint, John Barrowman says, England Olympics 2012 brackets logo, and submitted it. And they put it on the website with all the other entries. So hang on, hang on. England, how are you, how are you concatenating England and Olympics there? Because it sounds to me as if we're back in Abracadigans territory. Oh no, England was spelt correctly, but it was Olympics, L Y M P I C S. Because I wasn't crediting my fellow competitors with the ability to spell or well, to care about spelling. But that's why these things, they never work. No, I, and and you're, you're right to point out that these kind of talent competitions 
can be quite flawed. I, I, I seem to remember, this might be apocryphal, that there was some kind of competition on either Saturday Superstore or Going Live in which they invited viewers to send in artwork and the best one would become a mural on outside TV Centre. And by all means, Tim, jump in here if you can clarify the story. But my recollection is that the mural did happen and then was taken down after Paul Daniels complained. So it's safe to say he liked it not a lot then. No, I also think Paul Daniels falls into a particular category of men, of which it doesn't matter what you ask them, the answer you get is a story in which they win. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I've got a lot of time for Paul Daniels. You know, I've mentioned before that I had a Paul Daniels annual when I was young, where, you know, the normal thing was for celebrities to just lend their name to something, and they didn't take much care of the content, and that's how you got things like that to Ronnie's annual with fun with your calculator later in it but in the Paul Daniels one he'd obviously sat down and thought hang on this has my name on it it's part of my brand and it was full of what were clearly articles written by him about things like how he got into magic where he says you know if you've got a hobby or an interest it's a bit unusual don't let anyone tell you that's wrong don't let anyone bully you stick with it and one day you could be like me there was another one about how to spot con men or you know people trying to defraud you it was actually for you know for a kid's annual it was a really good annual but yeah he was always prone to stories like that I remember I can't remember which newspaper it was but when home computers first sort of really took off there was a supplement in one of the broadsheets about yeah an introduction to your home computer where it had it had computer literate celebrities talk about their experiences with the ZX Spectrum and the Commodore 64 and so on. Now, I can't remember which Paul had, but he talked about playing an adventure game. We hadn't liked the way it was working out for him, so we typed in a swear word and that was it. He kind of won against the computer then. By destroying the artificial life form that was the game. That's what he did there, didn't he? So tell me, where do you stand on Richard Mabley, Tim? Well, actually, I really don't mind him. Mm-hmm. I don't understand what he's done that's so wrong. I think he's just an easy target. And there was to come out of character for a minute, I was really annoyed a couple of days ago at the time of recording when he was standing in on Good Morning Britain for oh, yeah. the man mm-hmm. that we're on the bound to refer to on this programme as all-round arsehole, Piers Morgan. And... It turned into a big thing about there was an MP who refused to answer a straight question and Richard said, well, you're not answering questions, so I'm terminating this interview. And, And the general reaction to it seemed to be, lol, he's gone full partridge. And now... You know, even aside from the fact that that's ignoring the fact that Alan Partridge is at his best when he's standing up to people, when he's got the, not necessarily the moral upper hand, yes. but he's got he's got right on his side. I'm glad that somebody was actually doing that. And it wasn't a heavyweight journalist. It wasn't any of these provocative yeah. columnists. It was Richard Madeley, a man who's supposed to talk about knitting patterns, apparently. So I'm all for that. Let's have more of that, frankly. I had a programme idea for Richard Madeley many years ago, which was, it was a, uh, it was a hidden camera show in which in each episode Richard has to take on a different job and avoid detection for being the celebrity that he is. So, for example, he would work on the checkouts at the supermarket. Now, I think that would have been brilliant, and I also had a great title for this programme. Do you think you can guess what that title is? Uh, self-madely man? No, no, it was uh, definitely madely. Can I just steer us to my second This Morning related memory? So I think this was probably... My recollection is this wasn't the final Richard and Judy show. I think it was the um, the final show when they were leaving the Albert Dock. And what they did was they kind of did a sort of, you know, uh, a nostalgic look back on their time on This Morning. And they brought up a sequence which was never transmitted... And I believe that Richard didn't know that they'd done this. So they had a, so one day they had a kind of uh, sort of American jazz band in to do a number. And then, I don't know if it was on the commercial break or if it was the end of the day, Richard got the band to strike up that Chattanooga Choo Choo so that he could then come and sing it. He was brilliant. And so he knew all the words down pat. And it was, it was obviously one of those things where in his head he'd spotted this opportunity and he had uh, fully bottomed out what his role on this was going to be. So he had all the moves and he had uh, he had a fantastic delivery of the Chattanooga Choo Choo. Again, it's one of those clips that I've never seen since. There is a clip of him doing it on a Matt Lucas comedy show. And again, he, he turns in a very serviceable rendition of that. And I have to think that in a similar way that we know that the restart class comes from Mr. Waterlove and the United Kingdom. I like to think that that moment on, on the Matt Lucas show has to have come 
from someone who similarly watched that episode of This Morning. Well, that would be a nice, neat moment to sort of loop back and come up with a fairly easy ending, let's be honest about it. But before you go, Jack, we've got one last thing where there was going to be Mm -hmm. no way of identifying this and there was going to be absolutely no way of finding a clip to go with it either. So I believe you're going to do the honours. Why am I singing on this thing? I don't sing. I seem to be singing all the time on this. So, and I'm going to do so again. So you ready for your clip? We help Biff and Boff to find some cheese. Now they're going back to the moon. We're so happy. We're so pleased. Cause the summer holidays are coming up soon. So that is a piece of, again, uh, if we think of Legs Akimbo and the League of Gentlemen, this is the real life expression of that. So this was, I've been trying to desperately work it out in my mind when this comes from. I think it was possibly summer 1981. And this was at the primary school that I attended at the time, which was a primary school in the West Midlands. And it was a travelling theatre show, uh, the premise of which was there were these two characters called Biff and Boff who'd come to the planet Earth because I think the moon was running out of cheese. The thing that's very difficult for you in this situation talking to me about it, Tim, is there's not a lot of crumbs to go on. The other thing that I can tell you about is that there was a villain in the piece. So I think there must have been three actors in total. So we had to do that thing which you did at primary schools, which I think you don't do anymore, which is they make you sit on the floor. So I don't, I don't know why there was always a shortage of chairs in assembly halls when you were a kid, but we all had to sit on the floor. And there was a bit where the uh, the bad guy was about to get away, I'm thinking, with some cheese. So we, as a mass of six and seven-year-old kids, all piled on and dragged this guy to the floor. That's my recollection. That's my first recollection of live theatre. And what I'm interested in asking you is, is whether there was, if, if there was anything equivalent in your school days, or whether that was something that was quite unique to me. Well, I don't actually remember any taking place in school, but I remember being dragged to lots of similar things as a child. I remember in particular, we once went to an open air production of, I think it was Twelfth Night, done by some I think they must have been A-level drama students. But in the middle of it, in the intermission, kind of a a jester came out and started telling jokes. It wasn't like a traditional jester, it was more like Bogkin from the Ghost of Motley Hall. Uh He was telling all these deliberately corny jokes. And this kid, a couple of rows in front of us, turned round to his parents and said very angrily, this isn't Star Wars. So they'd obviously hubwinked him into coming to see it by saying it was Star Wars. But I don't know how anyone thought they could get away with that for more than five minutes. Though obviously they lasted a whole half of the play. But the other one that I really remember was at the Liverpool International Garden Festival in 1984. There were some drama students put on in one of the sort of makeshift tents they did shows in. A production of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight that was really good. It was really inventive. They used puppets and they used unusual sound effects and so on. And there was a female Sir Gawain as well so everyone get your complaints in on Twitter now and it was so good that we asked if we could go back the next day and went to see it again and I've always wondered because I took no notice of that age of who was in it if anyone who was in that because I think it might have been not quite rather but something high flown and I've always wondered if anyone who was in that went on to do anything that I might have seen and the thing about the Biff and Boff thing as well is that you know I have uh, over the years searched to find something about this because it must be a set text somewhere but I have to have come to the conclusion that um in the same way that I think Legs Akimbo penned their own works, I think the troupe, the, these three gentlemen who performed this Biff and Boff moon thing, I think they must have uh, written it themselves because there is not a trace of this anywhere. But the thing is, is that, you know, I saw that once. I was about seven or eight, and yet I can remember that refrain that I sang earlier. Well, Biff, or indeed Boff, if you're out there, if you're listening, please get in touch, not only so we can confirm that your message got through, but also so we can just ask you what the hell was going on. Anyway, hope you get an answer to that. Jack, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Can't help thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.